G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who Show. This is Series 6, Episode 4, and tonight we are doing New Who Doctors in classic episodes. It's the flip, Dave, of what we did back in 2018. Can you believe that? July of 2018, where we did classic Doctors in New Who episodes. Tonight is New Who Doctors in classic episodes. I'm already out of breath. How are you, Dave? I'm, I'm good. Was that really nearly three years ago? That was nearly three years ago. That was in our third series, uh, Series 3, Episode 7, if people want to go and look it up. Well, I'm kind of amazed that it didn't occur to us to do the reverse sooner. And in fact, <laughs> I think it was an audience suggestion that we it do. Was. So, it so was. thank you. Thank you for that. No, I think this is actually, it really felt very different in terms of trying to make the picks. So um, I'm interested to see what you've come up with. Yes. I want to say it was friend of the show, Owen Prince on Twitter. And I'll be very embarrassed if it wasn't Owen. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was Owen who suggested it. Excellent. Yes. Uh, other than that, yeah, I've been well. Very, very good. Well, look, we do have a ton to get through in this episode, so why don't we rip into some news, some short topics, and then we'll get on to that main feature that I know you and I are both uh, really curious to know if we're going to get any snaps tonight. And you're leading us with the news, Rob. I am. I'm going to start with uh, a news story. Billy Piper is out there talking about the next Doctor. I think it, it seems to be just an open secret now that Jodie's leaving. I mean, it still hasn't been confirmed, but even Billy Piper's weighing in saying, oh yeah, I think the next Doctor should be dot dot dot. And she has suggested Helena Bonham Carter. Have you seen this, Dave? Uh, I hadn't until you sent it to me. Oh, Okay. Look, I I looked at this and I thought, you know what? Helena Bonham Carter is a great actor. I like Helena Bonham Carter very much. Going back to, gosh, when she was really young, she did Hamlet with Mel Gibson. Do you remember that? She was fantastic in that. No, I'm not aware of that one. No, she she, she was Ophelia in Mel Gibson's Hamlet. But anyway, Mm. she's done a lot of stuff and I think she's great. So don't get me wrong with what I'm about to say. I think she's just the wrong age. She's 54 years old and... I think this is kind of the Idris Elba, James Bond syndrome all over again. People see an actor they like and they say, oh, they'd be fantastic for whatever role it is. And they just don't think of the logistics. You know, Peter Capaldi at 55 was at the upper end for Doctor Who. William Hartnell was 55 when he took on Doctor Who. If you're 55, she's 54 at the moment. She'd be 55 when she took on the role. I think you're really at the end of your... (laughs) your rope when it comes to Doctor Who. I think if they got her at 40, though, this would be a no-brainer. Yeah, I'm not particularly excited by that idea. I I agree with you. It's the, let's just find an actor or actress that we really like and say they should be Doctor Who. Mm. During the course of the month, Rob, you tweeted about Martin Freeman being in a particular movie. And you said that it just didn't quite work. And I, I made the comment that my problem is not so much with Martin Freeman, but Martin Freeman is usually a good symptom of a production team that isn't thinking too hard about things mm. and is just an easy and obvious pick for certain types of movies. And look, I, again, I think Helena Bonham Carter is a very capable actress, but if you're picking Helena Bonham Carter for something, it kind of feels in most cases like, who are we going to get? I know, Helena. Okay, cool, let's go for lunch. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it's not a very interesting pick or a very exciting pick, and, and it just feels like she's she's the trendy actress of that particular age at the moment. Let's get her up. Olivia Coleman is another one. Benedict Cumberbatch. Look, I've I've made comments about him before, but he gets cast in all sorts of parts, and I just go, why why is he playing that? Because oh, we need an English actor who can you know isn't conventionally handsome and can do weird. Oh, let's get Benedict Cumberbatch. Lunch. Yeah, look, I I hear you, Dave, but you know where Bonham Carter differs to, say, Cumberbatch or Coleman? 
it's in her real life, she is kind of as eccentric and nutty as she is in many of the roles she plays. And in that respect, I think she's kind of a Tom Baker pick. She would pretty much play herself and just have this sort of natural feel, very similar to how Tom did it. Whereas if you got a Cumberbatch or a Coleman, they would be playing a character. Whereas I think Bonham Carter can sort of just play herself and get away with it. So that's where I see a little bit of difference. That's where I see a germ of an idea there. And I think, oh, that could actually work. But yeah, I just think she's the wrong age for the role. It's very physical. It's 10 months out of every 12. It's going and living in Wales for at least three years. I I just don't think she's probably the one for it. No, look, I I don't think so either. But she'd be very, very interesting in the role. And she'd certainly get the show a huge injection of publicity. So, you know, be be a good call. But I don't think it'll happen. All right. Shall we move on? Uh, yeah, so incoming companion, and this, this that's a strange phrase to use. Incoming companion, John Bishop, was quoted in the Radio Times after doing an interview on the Graham Norton show, mm. uh, where he talked about how the BBC had told him off for committing the cardinal sin. Uh, he says, they rang him and said, you've told them about Doctor Who, Bishop said. I went, <laughs> I haven't told them anything. Anybody who looks at me knows that he's from Liverpool, and the BBC uh, issued a statement that said uh, his character Dan will become embroiled in the Doctor's adventures and quickly learn that there's more to the universe than he could ever believe, which is, um, you know, somebody <laughs> speaking in real natural language there, you know, <laughs> these, these awful BBC statements. Um, and then, look, there was a whole lot of stuff about how he was asked to do the role and he couldn't because of, of clashes and then things fell through because of COVID and the, the production team was put back. And it's worth just mentioning this quote as well. And then the whole COVID thing happened. Lockdown arrived, so I made a phone call. Unfortunately, they'd moved their filming dates. It now fits in perfectly. I'm doing Doctor Who up until July, and then I go on the road again in September. So that, I think, just lets us know that the filming is happening and is happening up until July. Yeah, because I'm, I'm sure he lasts the whole series because I mean, it's a cut-down series. You know, I'd like to think he lasts the whole series. So very interesting info there. And it, it, it's telling too, like we've heard in the past, especially with Chibnall's first uh, series and to a large extent his second, how protective he is of, you know, secrets and things on set. But uh, this one's probably taking it a bit far. You know, he's been yeah, filming yes. in Liverpool. He is Liverpudley and he's got the accent. I mean, gosh, do people think he's... he's character's going to be Scottish or, you know, y- Yes, yes. Guy, guy who made his career and is famous for being a Liverpudlian will be using a Liverpudlian accent. He's not exactly the uh, biggest and worst secret the BBC has leaked in the last 10 years. Yeah, so funny one there. Moving along, Chris Eccleston, as everyone knows, has made some big Finnish stories. As listeners to this show know, I'm pretty excited about it. I think it's the most important thing Big Finish has probably done since they got Paul McGann back in... Uh, 99 or 2000 or whenever they got him on board and we actually have a description of his first uh, set of three episodes which has the umbrella title of Ravages and I want to read it to you Dave it says on the sphere of freedom the doctor is about to shut down an evil immersive games business empire he's assisted by a valiant galley chef called Nova but his plan spectacularly fails. Now the Doctor must fight back to discover what could have caused everything to go so badly wrong. His journey takes him via Piccadilly Circus in 1959, Belgium, 1815, and far-flung future worlds where machine intelligences regard sentient life as mere biofuel. Where does this mysterious old-timer Audrey fit in? 
Is the alien beverage Shargansi safe to drink? And is there really anything the Doctor can do to stop the entire universe from being devoured? Now, that is a tease. Compared to that description of Dan, that that <laughs> is a much better sort of tease there, Dave, I think. Uh, yeah, I'm a little bit disappointed to hear that it's going to be an Ark in the Box set because, as I said to you when this was first announced, my intention will be to sort of pick a story everyone thinks is kind of cool and drop in. And if I like the Eccleston stories, maybe I'll drop in a bit longer and a bit more. Um, this this sounds like it's going to be, you know, that, that, that sort of big finish box set epic thing that they, they tend to do a lot of, and it doesn't sit well with me. But, um, yeah, look, it sounds exciting. Sounds yeah. good. Are you, I, mean, I mean, I know you're very keen for it. Did, did this, you know, ramp up your excitement, Rob? Oh, look, it has, and there is an audio trailer kicking around out there, and, and I instantly recognised they were going to be at Waterloo. That's what the Belgium 1815 thing is. Uh, look, I'm actually going to say a bit more about Eccleston and Big Finish in our short topic, so I'll cut it short there because I've got, I've got more to say coming up. I am excited for it, Dave, still, and I think this move to box sets is just the way their business model is going. They seem to be more lucrative if they can just bung three stories together and charge people, you know, twice as much, triple, whatever it is. Yeah, look, I, I do know that they've said before that their biggest revenue stream, and, and the one that really keeps them going, is the, the subscriber and the box set model, and they're, they're not really built around, for, for obvious reasons, people like myself who just dip in every now and then and go, oh, I'll try that one, I'll try that one. You know, that's mm. that's not sustainable, and so I, I, I get that. But um, as I say, I'm, I'm going to wait and see what, what the reaction is. But speaking of business models and box sets... Yes. Common Sense is finally prevailing, kind of, with the... <laughs> With the Doctor Who Blu-ray set. And I say kind of because they are going to be releasing non-collectible editions of the Season 12 and Season 19 box sets, which are long out of print. And they're coming out on the 31st of May. Now, as far as I'm aware, the discs themselves are exactly the same. The, the packaging will be slightly slimmer, so I would argue better than the first ones. <laughs> yes. And, um, and, and they are... That you can tell that they're non-collector's editions because they are a full two pounds less than the collector's editions. <laughs> look, I say sanity prevails kind of because, look, it makes perfect sense. There are clearly people out there that didn't get these sets. They sold out. They continue to sell out. So it makes sense that they're doing additional runs. It doesn't make sense to me, though, that they don't just also say, well, clearly we need to print more of these yes. things when we do the initial runs and, and just sell a whole lot more of them and not have these sets sell out, you know, before people can even pre-order them. So uh, at least, though, you know, hopefully we'll get these sort of mass sets come out. Um, it certainly is a big disruption to the scalper model, which is good. And yeah, um, but, but, yeah, look, if these are actually the same discs but in thinner, less big and ostentatious boxes... I'd rather have had them. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, because... Uh, <laughs> look, I've actually looked at the US releases and thought they're more interesting than, than what we get, because we get a very similar sort of release to the UK here. They're slightly different, but they're pretty much the same. Whereas in the US, they just get these really robust DVD cases, or Blu-ray cases, I should say. And uh, I, I, <laughs> I've looked at those and thought, mm, yeah, they're pretty good, I think. But uh, yeah, look, uh, killing the, the scalper model is great, as I've always said, this content is not limited edition, you know, so it, a repressing is fine by me, maybe not with the same packaging, which is indeed what they've ended up doing. So I, I think this is just good times all round. I, 
hats off to them. I, I won't be buying them because I've already bought the uh, the collector's ones and I'll, I'll obviously keep buying those now to keep the set looking relatively the same. Uh, as I say, there are differences between the UK and Australian ones and I do have a sort of a mix of those, but, you know... First world problems, Dave. And, and to reiterate a point I know we've made before on the podcast many times, Rob, uh, in the last week I've seen news of two different series that I like coming off particular streaming services and either going to something that's new or going to a more subscriber model. So once again, the idea that fans wouldn't want you know a nice Blu-ray set to make sure they've always got these stories on disc uh, baffles me because streaming services are more and more just becoming not the reliable thing they could should be or could be. Mm-hmm. Precisely right. That's the news, though. Shall we move on to short topics? Uh, yes, and you're going back to the Eccleston well. I'm going back to the Eccleston well because there is much more to say. There was controversy this month, Dave, around Eccleston and Big Finish because he's been hitting the um, the uh, the interview circuit, you know, a fairly small interview circuit, but he's been out there talking about being on Big Finish and, you know, returning to the role and all of that stuff. And <laughs> Eccleston being Eccleston, he was brutally honest about it and he basically got out there and said you know this is a job it pays the mortgage it schools the kids particularly in a uh, pandemic year it's it's been a godsend and you know and people on one hand read into that oh my god the only reason he's coming back to doctor who is to make cash people on the other hand were like you know chris is a saint i'm going to defend everything he says and those two sides clashed mightily on social media this past month i mean the actual quote i've got in front of me eccleson said what convinces a bricklayer to build a wall what convinces a plumber to plumb what convinces you to do your job first of all i mean it's not fashionable to say it and because we're all english we don't want to talk about these things but i'm an actor and the way i pay my mortgage and support my children is by acting so it's paid work and I've got to be honest, Dave, I I was really happy to hear him say this because I have said so many times over the years, people, not everyone in Doctor Who is into Doctor Who like you are. (laughs) They're working (laughs) actors, you know, it's it's a job. At the end of the day, even if they go in a magazine and say, this was a wonderful experience and my God, the writing was great. It's still just a job. Accept it. Stop seeing them at all as fanboys. Some of them are fanboys. Yes, Capaldi was a fanboy. Yes, Tennant was a fanboy. But not all of them are. Some of them don't even know what Doctor Who is when they get involved with it. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be just a job. It can be a job that was really enjoyable and they enjoyed going into work every morning, but it was still a job. Exactly right. Yeah, I I, I saw this all sort of floating around Twitter and and mostly ignored it. But I did just throw into one of the debates on Twitter that wonderful quote from Michael Caine where somebody said to him, why on earth did you do Jaws the Revenge? And he replied, because it put another story on my house. (laughs) See, that's great. That's honest. Yeah, that's what they do. And they they take the job that's going to give them, you know, a certain amount of reward and a certain amount of cash. And that's okay. And look, one quick thing I did want to mention too, we, we talked about the plot of these first three stories for him and how he's got a companion who's a, a galley chef called Nova. And I've been thinking, how on earth is this going to work? I mentioned this the first time we heard that Eccleston was doing Big Finish. Um, you know, will he be with Billy? What's going to happen? How does it work? And now that we know he's got this Nova companion, is he going to stay a bit aloof with her? which then makes sense that by the time he meets Billy, he's still aloof to people. Or will he get close to this companion and then something tragic has to happen and it sort of resets him back into PTSD mode before he meets Rose? Because, oh, look, I know some fans don't like continuity, but to me, continuity is pretty important. And if I'm going to believe that the Eccleston in Rose 
is broken and doesn't want to know people and Rose fixes him, then I I need this Nova relationship to, to, to work in with that and not just be, oh, he's great mates with Nova, then, then they split up. And then he's really sad again before he meets Rose. It just won't make sense. Yeah, I don't have the problem with that that you do, Rob. And I know we disagree on this one, but <laughs> I'm very happy just to go, it's big finish, it's different, who cares? Mm. You know, in, in, in the same way that as somebody who grew up with the new and missing adventures, I was very happy to go, oh, you know, this missing adventure doesn't perfectly fit in with the on-screen continuity of this particular season of Davo. Who cares? It's a book. It doesn't need to. That's okay. Courses for courses. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt you'll be alone though, Rob, let me say that. Oh no, <laughs> that's for sure. I made a promise at the end of our last monthly podcast that I was going to finally get around to finishing my rewatch of the one story from the Hartnell era that I think is bad. Mm. And I did, and it is still bad. <laughs> Tell us about it, Dave. <laughs> and that's the Space Museum. I oh, know yeah. people people defend this, and people defend all Doctor Who. You know, every Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody, and that's a really good thing, but... I just struggle with the Space Museum. It is it is boring. It is dull. Mm. The guest cast really aren't quite sure what they're doing. And and even people defend that first episode as, oh, it's a really wacky first episode. And, and no, it's one of those things in TV where suddenly bizarre things just happen to happen because we need them to happen this week. You know, mm. the glass of water that Vicky has jumps back into her hand and the, their clothes change randomly in the console room because this week weird stuff has to happen in the TARDIS to set up this stuff and then it's just very slow and they don't really sort of ever go into the 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 real depth and the real fear of what should be happening and, and changing time. It's a good story for Vicky, I'll give it that. I think it's a really good story for Vicky. Hartnell gets a couple of good scenes but mostly they just walk around gormlessly and I'm not talking about just the TARDIS crew, just the baddies. Everyone just kind of walks around gormlessly. It's cheap even for the Hartnell era. I, I was bored by it. I'm very sorry to say. Um, but I have watched some other Hartnells during the course of the month and I really enjoyed them. Um, I'm partway through the Web Planet at the moment, which has got its faults, but it is so interesting and so different and so imaginative that I can forgive it its weaker scenes. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, my God, look at what you're trying to do. Like, that's got to be applauded. It's fantastic. Yeah, and that first episode, I I don't know that there are many Doctor Who stories that have an opening episode just as weird and different and creepy and imaginative as the web planet does you know ghost light mm. mind robber come to mind but but not many so i gave the space museum a chance i still don't like it if you want to defend it write it and defend it but um it's the one bad hartnell in my view well I'll, I'll throw out a question without notice did you read the target novel as as a kid and did you like that oh i did and i do remember it being a bit better yeah but it but it, it you know it's so, it's so long ago i couldn't really sort of sit there and defend it. I, I have read it i do remember it being better and i'll leave it at that yeah yeah, look, like many Target novels, it was better than what was on telly. Yeah. Moving on, a uh, quick one for me. We had three Doctors have birthdays during this past month. David Tennant turned 50. 50? Like, that's just incredible. Uh, and it just does hammer home to me. You know, one day you're 35 and the next day you're 50. It's like, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Not that I've got to 50 yet myself, but I'm, I'm staring down the barrel of it. And it's like, yeah. One day you're in your mid-30s and the world's your oyster, and next thing, my God, you're 50. (laughs) Yeah. That was quite extraordinary. Uh, Davo, my doctor, turned 70. 
Uh, and meanwhile, Peter Capaldi turned 63, which I thought was quite interesting because, you know, Davo was obviously the youngest doctor before Smithy. Capaldi was the oldest doctor on par with Hartnell. And their eras are so far apart, yet age-wise, there's only seven years between them. It's uh, it's quite extraordinary in that way. Yeah, it really did freak me out. Um, Peter Davison was born the same year as my mum. Uh, right. And in fact, John Pertwee was born the same year as my grandmother. Yeah, that, that sort of thing of Davo being 70 is... It doesn't compute. No, um, it really doesn't. It's, it's much like I looked up the other day, uh, Chris Ellison from The Bill, who played Burnside in The Bill... He, oh, I think he's, he's 73 or 74 now. Oh, my God. I bet he could still hammer you, though. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And he'll still be great in the role. And look, Davo is still a great actor. And, you know, he, he looks like a very fit and healthy 70-year-old. I mean, he's got a young family and that probably would mm. help. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not computing any of those. Yeah, it's pretty pretty wild. <laughs> but Tennant at 50. My God. No, 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 not accepting that. <laughs> Final one, Dave. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to give a plug for a Doctor Who book that I've been reading lately. It's called Bookworm, and it's by Anthony Wilson and Robert Smith, but from ATB Publishing. And this is a book that basically talks all about the Virgin New Adventures. Mm. And I saw it on Twitter, and I thought, I need to own this, and I bought it straight away, and it shipped really quickly, which was great. It cost a little bit, because, you know, shipping to Australia does cost a bit. Yes. Um, and I sort of thought this was going to be a book that I'll, you know, pick a few of the uh, chapters here, you know, I'll look at the tire science, then I'll look at you know, deceit or whatever. And then I'd sort of thought, I'm enjoying this so much, I'm going to go back to the start and read it from start to finish. And it's one of those perfect ones because it's, you know, divided into chapters about all 62, I think, books. So it's the perfect one to go, I just need something for 20 minutes before I go to bed or to fill in some time. I'll read about a couple of new adventures. It's a really interesting read. They've done a huge amount of research, just an incredible amount of research, uh, everything they have is referenced. So when they're saying, uh, at one point the Doctor discusses this, and then they'll say brackets, page 604, or whatever. Um, so mm. you can actually go back to the novel and, and, and actually look at what they're talking about. Uh, if I've got one criticism, there's a few times where they um, very deliberately judge the books based on 2020 sensibilities. And, and a couple of times Ooh. I've thought, you know what, you didn't need to go down that path, and I don't think it's an issue, but that's fine, that's fine, I can I can get past that. So, look, I've really enjoyed that book, Bookworm. Look it up online if you're interested in the new adventures. But, Rob, you chucked me a uh, new new adventure book that's coming out as well. Mm-hmm. Because I, I do own a copy of Bookworm, too. I, I haven't read it because, uh, spoilers, because I haven't read most of the new adventures. But there is another new adventures and, I think, missing adventures-related uh, book coming out from David J. Howe who is uh, pretty legendary in terms of Doctor Who research and, you know, non-fiction books and all that sort of stuff, uh, scheduled for late 2021, and it's called The Who Adventures. It's a play on The New Adventures. It's The Who Adventures, The Art and History of Virgin Publishing's Doctor Who. This will be a £30 uh, book. Uh, I think it's a slight discount from £35 on their website at the moment. It's a pre-order. Look, although we have only just seen the cover and a description of what's inside it, I think um, old magazine articles that David J. Howe has written might make up some of it even. It's still going to be quality. It's still going to be worth it. It's in a similar vein, I believe, to to his uh, The Target book that has been reprinted oh, probably about three times in hardback and a yeah. couple of times in paperback. And that is a pretty legendary book about the Target books. So I think this is going to be the same except for the N.A.'s and MAs, and that's got to be a good thing. It looks absolutely gorgeous, like a lot of the work that David J. Howe does. He he does work that fans 
want and will will enjoy and he knows what fans like um i will certainly get a copy it does work out to be about 95 dollars shipped and landed in australia so mm. it's not going to be a spontaneous buy <laughs> it wasn't one where you sent the link and i've opened and gone that's awesome i'll buy it now it's like that's awesome 95 bucks i'll buy it soon <laughs> yeah yeah well there's no rush because it is a pre-order exactly exactly but no um it's it's really just interesting the new adventures particularly have been getting a lot of love recently. I think it's because a lot of fans who are of of my age particularly and really grew up with them like I did are now moving into their 40s, if not in their 40s, and are at that right point now to spend a bit of cash and do a bit of nostalgia on something that was a big part of their Doctor Who fandom. And I think that many of us of this age are looking for this sort of nostalgia and look back on the Virgin books, and that's a really good thing because more than anything, I've said before, more than anything, they were... They were kind of my era of the show. Mm. Oh, I, I hear you. And when I came back to the show after my own personal wilderness years, the EDAs and the PDAs were kind of like an era for me, you know, with the Eighth Doctor. And we will have to do an episode one day on those, days. I know. It's probably on the tip of your tongue. <laughs> we will. We will. Uh, but that's it for short topics. Yeah, good stuff there. You know what that means, Rob? I do know what it means, Dave, and I'm, I'm quietly going internally berserk it's it's very exciting actually <laughs> because we've been looking forward to doing this for a month yeah look listeners for those who don't follow us on twitter we have been doing a lot of exchanges and we've also had a lot of private conversations because sometimes when we do these picks you know or, or we're doing a you know five best alien worlds or a thoughts about this story we, you know there are some obvious places to go or some obvious directions we expect from each other this one the idea of putting new who doctors into classic stories is just feels so off the wall Mm. i had no idea where i was going to go with these and some of them i really would not have known where i was going to land on these and so i'm really curious just to know where you went and whether we went down some similar paths or some incredibly different paths yeah uh i've i've said to you and and when when listeners when we say we talk we don't actually tell each other what we've we've thinking uh, in terms of the actual stories and stuff so I'm, I'm still in the dark but i have said to you dave that one of mine i believe is just off the wall nuts i think it's the craziest idea i've ever had <laughs> in in six years of making the doctor who show in seven years of doing who wars and the doctor who show been doing this game a long time and i think this is still my craziest thought in podcasting yeah i reckon that two of mine are incredibly obvious and could potentially be snaps uh, one of them is reasonably obvious, and the other two are completely off the wall. So, interesting to see if you think the same thing when we uh, when we get to them, and you can pick which ones were obvious. But look, we're skating around the issue, Rob. <laughs> yes, we are. Let's put some new Who Doctors into classic stories. Okay, who who goes first? Should we toss a coin or something? Do you have a? Coin? I don't think I've. Oh, I, no, I must have a coin somewhere on my desk. This is live, people. <laughs> So, Rob, I've got a 10-cent coin I literally just picked up off the floor. There's serendipity for you. Yes. Uh, would, would you like Queen Elizabeth II or a lyrebird? I would like a lyrebird because tails never fails. It's heads. <laughs> there you go. What would you like to do? Um, I will send you into bat. Send me into bat. Oh, gosh. Okay, the pressure's on. Christopher Eccleston is the first doctor, first cab off the rank. And I think he was my hardest to place. He was my easiest. 
Oh, okay, so we're already conflicting. Because the Eccleston Doctor, to me, presents as this radically different kind of thing to what's gone before. And so I can't easily deploy some of the tricks that I'm going to deploy later on when we get to Smith, Capaldi, Whitaker. Even at the time of the series being made, Eccleston said he wasn't as, quote, as eccentric and foppish as he was in some of his other incarnations. And RTD even characterised the character as a stripped-down version of previous Doctors. So when I look at what makes Eccleston tick, it's that... I guess he's happy to be alive and moving forward. He's not wanting to really dwell on the past. So although that's PTSD-driven, I think it creates this kind of upbeat persona that this Doctor wants to be, even if he doesn't feel it genuinely all the time. He, he He's wanting to get out there and he wants to meet the aliens and he just wants to experience things. I'm thinking of the end of the world there, for example. And, you know, I, I sort of let all this trickle down into my head and... And I thought, you know, given the way Eccleston seemed to do well back in time with Dickens or in World War II with The Empty Child, I think I'd like to push him towards an historical. And when we think historicals, we think the first Doctor primarily and a little bit of the second Doctor. So I'm actually going to push him into the massacre. (gasps) Wow! Yeah, because I think this is a heavy kind of topic that I think the Ninth Doctor could get into. Quite how the logistics work out, like would he actually be a good double for the Abbot? I'm not so sure about that. Would Rose be convincing going off making friends with some Hoosnos? I don't know about that. So it probably needs some tweaking. But yeah, I think Eccleston back in time for a big event like the Massacre would be really good. I think that would be really good, and I think that Christopher Eccleston would be amazing as the Abbot of Amboise. There you go. I was thinking more in terms of his look, more so than his acting ability. Look, he would not be wearing a leather jacket in that part of the role. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and probably have a wig on, but that's okay. That's that's period. That's okay. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Well, I went in a hugely different direction with Christopher Eccleston, and... When I first sat down to start thinking about where I was going to go with my picks, this was the one that just popped into my head and seemed so incredibly obvious. Yes. I think about Christopher Eccleston as that strong doctor, PTSD, confrontational, and I am going to put him into Genesis of the Daleks. Oh, Can you imagine Christopher Eccleston confronting Davros? Can you imagine him doing the do I have the right speech can you imagine him at the very end doing the from that comes something good speech all of those sort of things I just think he would give such a powerful performance Uh, that moment in part four of I sent them both in there just really good gravitas that really strong character that he brings to the role I think that his PTSD would work well in that Khaled Thal war and I just think to me this one made so much sense yeah, look, is this informed to some degree by the fact he is strong in a Dalek story in his one and only series? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that I am transplanting his confrontation with the Dalek from Dalek yes. straight into Genesis of the Daleks. I think there's a really strong link there, and uh, I could just see him being amazing in that story. Yeah, gee, that's good. But we've gone in completely different directions today. Completely different. So uh, there you go. Yeah, no snaps there. No snaps there. So I'll kick us off with David Tennant. Yes. And I like David Tennant when he gets to be dramatic but serious. I, I don't like flippy David Tennant. I like scared David Tennant, 
uh, moral David Tennant, angry David Tennant, and therefore, strangely enough, not a shock, I'm putting him into a Davo story because I think that the, the two of them can sort of fill each other's shoes quite well. Yes. And in particular, I'm putting him into Earthshock. Oh, okay. Not a snap. Not a snap. So David Tennant exploring the caves, I think, would be... He'll be perfect at that, like, ooh, a brontosaurus skeleton. Ooh, a hatch, you know. He'll do all that sort of thing. But then you get that David Tennant that has to confront the cyber leader, the David Tennant that has to manage Tegan, the David Tennant that has to deal with the death of Adric. I just think that, you know, David Tennant is a really, really good and capable actor, really capable actor. I don't like everything he does in the role of the Doctor, but when he has to act... He's really, really good. And I think Earthshock would let him act the full spectrum of his character really, really well. Yeah. Yeah, look, I can see that. It's it's, it's a million miles from where I've gone because I'm about to do my absolutely crazy uh, suggestion. <laughs> um, but, but yeah. It works, doesn't it? It does work. I'm, I'm, I'm tossing around so many little things in my head I can't form coherent sentences. Just, yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. So your your crazy one, Rob, is it going to be something like the Pescatons or something? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not the Pescatons. Look, this one was almost as hard for me as Eccleston was in some ways. You know, I sit here and think, well, what, what makes Dave, Dave? You know, not you, but Dave Tennant. <laughs> And there are, there are aspects I think of, but I, I don't necessarily want to think of. Like, I think of the whole lonely god shtick. You know, I didn't like that. Mm. I think of the Time Lord Victorious stuff, and I'm not so hot on that. I think of the lovey-dovey stuff with Rose. I'm not really interested in that. So, I gravitate, when I think of Tenant and what I think is the best of Tenant to the sort of Tenant we see with Donna. Yes. Now, something like the Agatha Christie episode, perhaps, because it's it's almost slapstick in places, like where he's poisoned and he's saying, you know, I, I need salt, you know, and he's pointing at things in the kitchen <laughs> and he's dancing around. And that's extremely slapstick. And, and they're having this wild, bloody adventure with Agatha Christie and a giant wasp and all sorts of crazy stuff going on. And when I transpose that to classic Who, I really surprised myself. <laughs> Because here it comes. I'm landing in the Sylvester McCoy era. Okay. And I'm landing in the early Sylvester McCoy era. Okay. And I'm landing (laughs) in Delta and the Bannermen. (laughs) (laughs) Keep going. I can't do anything but laugh. Because we've already seen Tennant do all right in the 50s, like in The Idiot's Lantern. Yep. And I think he'd blend into the holiday camp quite well. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still laughing. <laughs> Keep going. He'd, be in the, he'd blend into the holiday camp quite well. I think he'd enjoy himself with the rock and roll and the motorbikes. Yes. And, you know, the, the, the really bonkers aliens. Yep. Fl- it, flirting with Ray. If flirting with Ray. I don't even have that in my notes. But yes, absolutely. And in some ways, the campy nature of Delta isn't a million miles away from RTD stuff in general. That said, I, I realise this is probably the last story that listeners were thinking of for Tennant. <laughs> but when we strip away a lot of the stuff about his Doctor that I think can be off-putting, like I mentioned earlier, I just land here at Delta. And, and maybe I, I can't believe I've landed here, but I've 
landed here. Dave, save me. <laughs> no, look, it's a really funny pick, and I, I really like where you've gone with that. But I can I can see it. I, I can imagine him arriving at Shangri-La and, oh, it's a holiday camp. I love a holiday camp. Ooh, yeah. and, and doing all of that sort of thing and, and getting into it, flirting with Ray, having some fun. Um, but also, you can imagine Tennant giving that end of part two speech to Gavrock. You know, I came under a flag of truce and I'll leave under a flag of truce and won't be tight. You know, you, you could see Tennant doing that. Yeah I, yeah, I actually think that as funny as it is, and it, I am still giggling at it, um, <laughs> I actually can see it working really, really well. Yeah, yeah. I think he could do it beautifully. And as I say, it would... He would be acting to all the things I, I like to see him do, like the slapstick stuff, the, the bonkers sort of stuff, and just getting away from the, the stuff that leaves me a bit a bit cold. The, the one thing that would be interesting, and I wonder if they would change it for this, is that Delta is famous because obviously Delta leaves with Billy at the end. Mm. And, you know, Delta probably wasn't going to leave with Sylvester McCoy. But if Delta's meeting the Doctor, does that become a bit of a love triangle? Or is Billy going to have to compete with David Tennant to get the girl? Oh, wow, that's delicious. I think what you do is Delta is into Tennant, but Tennant doesn't realise. He's a bit oblivious. Yeah. And and Billy is very jealous of Tennant, but Tennant's not trying at all, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Tennant's got no interest. He's not trying. And Billy's just infuriated by him. I think that could be a fun sort of thing. Yeah, no, you could definitely do a lot with that. And um, I'm now sort of wondering which companion you'd put in there as well to replace Mel. And, and Donna could be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. I think she'd, she'd play it up, you know, as a comedian. I think she'd get into it, you know. Well, that is off the wall, Rob, but uh, no, that's very cool. <laughs> Great. Uh, my next one was my hardest one. And right. That is because, again, I was trying to nail the Matt Smith doctor down. Into, okay. a, in, into a shape that I thought could be transposed neatly into a story. And I was kind of going all over the place. And so I thought, okay, what what is it that I really like about Matt Smith? And when do I really like him? Yes. I like him when he's exploring. And he's excited to be exploring. Something new, something alien, something different. Yeah. And I like him when he gets to be moral. And you get, you get that quieter, that very low Matt Smith, just the... You're not supposed to do that. That's not how it works. You're not a good person. You know, that very mm. subtle Matt Smith, I think, is really, really good. So I'm going to put him into a Pertwee story. Okay. One where he gets to both be moral and to explore. And that is Colony in Space. Oh, wow. Okay. So bear with me here, because I guess this probably was not a natural pick. No, no, not at all, actually. But the opening part of Colony in Space walking around the alien world and just being excited to be exploring an alien world. I think he's great, Matt Smith. Then when he meets the colonists and he, all that stuff about, you know, you should have a thriving colony. I don't know why this isn't working. He, he can explore and he can investigate and he can do all that. Then he gets to confront IMC and he can be the moral voice of the story. Then exploring the primitive city again, where he's really, really strong. Those confrontations, both in the middle and at the end of the story, with the guardian of the city, where, again, you need that real doctorish gravitas, that real sense of uh, moral righteousness that the doctor can have to do it. Mm. And, and I could imagine Smith doing those conversations, you know, that, that stuff about, um, you know, mercy as well as justice prevails in your city, sir, I think would be a really good Matt Smith speech. So all, all the way through this, I just thought he can fit in really, really well. And particularly playing against the Master, I think he would work really well against Delgado's Master. And 
finally that exchange he has with the master where he says i don't want to rule the universe i want to explore it i'd love to see matt smith give that speech dare i say i think it'd make a better story than the one we currently have Ooh, controversial <laughs> controversial um but no you, you see where i'm coming from i do very much i yeah i, I can buy that one too absolutely so where have you put mr smith smithy smithy Dave made no bones about him basing his doctor on Troughton. He even has his hair like him in Series 5 to a large degree before he really goes for the, the quiff sort of look. But more broadly, the, the goofing around, the hand acting, but also having that slightly darker personality under the surface, or at least being able to drop his voice, you know, sotto voce, um, you know, and, and just be a, a little bit more serious. We've, we've both latched onto that, haven't we? Yeah, that that's, to me, that's very Pat, you mm. know. So I'm looking at Pat's era. And I think something with the Daleks needs to get the chocolates here because Smithy was so poorly done with Dalek stories, you know, stuff like Victory of the Daleks and Asylum of the yeah. Daleks. I mean, please. So something like... Evil of the Daleks has a very cool plot. It has Daleks behaving awesomely. And of course, it has the scene where the three Daleks with the human factor activate and they force the Doctor into a game of trains. I mean, that has got Smithy written all over it. Could you imagine Smithy playing trains with some Daleks? And in a purely fantasy sense, this story is mostly missing two so you know to have a smithy version of it i think would be something cool in general but i think more broadly i think he just fits in i think there are some scenes that his doctor would really play well with like the the train scene and it's just a hell of a good dalek story which by god he deserved i'm mulling this one over okay and i think i I think i'm struggling a little bit because this is one of my absolute favorite stories and i and and i love padding it so I'm, i'm I'm struggling to take Pat out of it, mm. but as I do, yeah, I, I can see, I can see where you're going. I can certainly see the dark part of Pat there. You know, the experimenting on his companions. Yeah, and you can certainly see Clara filling the Jamie role there of of, of you know being being this pawn the Doctor's using his plot with the Daleks. That certainly works. Because uh, it's been a while since I read Evil. Does, doesn't Jamie not want to travel with the Doctor or something because he gets so mad? Am I misremembering that? No, no, that's absolutely right. It's, it, it's, yeah. it's basically the I don't know who you are anymore speech. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, I, and we've almost seen Clara do that, actually, in yeah. Cavaldi's era. I, I, I think that I wasn't quite over the line on Smith in this, but Smith and Clara together in this, that works. Mm. How about that? How about that? <laughs> Yeah, we've we've had we've had uh well we've had six so far, Dave. Three doctors at a choice each. No snaps. No, and uh, I don't think we're going to get one on this one either. Because um, well we might. Who knows? Uh, so Peter Capaldi. Yes. Along with Smith, Peter Capaldi is one of the two that I really struggled to, to place, and it took me a while to lock him in. But once I worked it out, it made perfect sense to me. Okay. A story where the Doctor is a little bit manic, a little bit aggressive. But having a lot of fun. Sounds like something from the Tom era. It's from the Troughton era. Oh, my God. Okay. Very early Troughton. In fact, I'm putting Capaldi into the Highlanders. Ah! 
<laughs> great, great. Scotland. He's going to be in Scotland, which fits him perfectly. How good was he in Eaters of Light? You know, he fits in so well in Scotland. But I can imagine Capaldi just pretending to be a, a, a German lawyer and bamboozling all the British soldiers. I can imagine Capaldi confronting <laughs> yes, a solicitor. Yes, yes. Capaldi, the man, the, the, the doctor who famously punched a, punched a racist, gets to be the doctor that, you know, beats up a solicitor. Um, yes. <laughs> and he gets, he, gets to, he gets to dress as a washerwoman and play whist. And he gets to let his companions kind of save the day. I think that Capaldi would have so much fun walking around 18th century Scotland in all sorts of costumes, doing funny voices and beating up solicitors. I could just see him doing that and doing it with such a gleam in his eye. I took a long time to work out where to put Capaldi, but now that I've put him here, perhaps more than any of the others, I want to see this one. That's brilliant. I think that's your best one so far, Dave. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I like that very, very much, actually. That is fabulous. Where did, fabulous. Where did you go with Mr. Capaldi? Well, Capaldi was one of my easier ones. Now right. I'm not so sure. I um, I think maybe I've leapt at something early and maybe not given it enough thought when I, when I think <laughs> of the Highlanders. But Capaldi, I see, is very Tom-like. Uh, you know, originally I thought he wanted to be a bit pertwee with the clothes and the hair, you know, going from short to bouffant. But that was more about how he looked. In terms of how he acted, I always felt he had more in common with Tom. Absolutely. And that's why when you started describing that last story and I was saying, is it a Tom story? I thought, oh, we could be getting actually close to a snap here, but obviously not. He's capable of a goofy line, but he's equally capable of just losing his temper fairly easily. And so I think of Tom's era and I think, where am I going to put Capaldi? And I'm going to hone in on the deadly assassin. Because when Capaldi got to Gallifrey in his era, all he did was act surly and be horrible to Rassilon, who's like, you know, this dead set Time Lord legend, or at least he's meant to be. I'm not, sh- not sure what Rassilon's meant to be anymore, actually. But anyway, Capaldi got there. He was just surly. He was horrible to Rassilon. But I think Capaldi on Gallifrey is a bit of a disaster in Hellbent. Yeah. Whereas I think the Deadly Assassin would see him there having a really cool adventure. And you'd have all that Time Lord intrigue. You'd have the Master. You'd have the Matrix. And I think Capaldi could get properly angry in places. He could also get to do a bit of uh, physical stuff, you know, like on the train line and stuff like that, which I don't think he got to do a lot of physical stuff in his era. I was trying to think. Like, he he ran around a few times and people would say, oh, he runs like a penguin with its bum on fire or whatever the expression was. But he did really get to be a, a very, very physical doctor. I mean, you've mentioned he punched the racist in... Um, thin ice but yeah on the whole i don't think he did so i thought oh deadly assassin could be capaldi on gallifrey doing cool stuff and i just i just went there but again after the highlanders i think maybe i've shortchanged him but that's my pick that's what i put in my notes no that one works really well don't sell yourself there rob uh, i'm thinking of absolutely the physical stuff i think that would be really interesting but where i think he would shine are some of those witty conversations with some of the Time Lords. You know, the uh, the 9 out of 10 conversation with Barusa. I can just imagine him looking back with that Capaldi sparkle, like, did you really go there? Okay, whatever. Um, the uh, slightly um, fatuous and patronising conversation he has with Runcible. A- again, I could just imagine Capaldi in the full Time Lord robes having those conversations. I think that would be really, really fun. And um, 
it would fit in really well. Imagine him doing that and then deciding to uh, go retire to become a university professor and meeting Bill. I think it would work really well. Oh, what a tie-in that would be. Yeah. Yes. Okay, you've you've resold me on my own idea. <laughs> well, it's your turn to talk about uh, the current Doctor, Jodie Whittaker. Yeah, Jodie Whittaker. Jodie's era. I see as having parallels with Hartnell and Davison because of the crew size. I'm not, I'm not saying anything profound here. Loads of fans say it. We've mentioned it a million times on the podcast. And if I was pushed, I think her Doctor and Davo also have similarities, and not just the hair colour. You know, she's not a super forceful personality. She doesn't always win, or at least win satisfactorily. I think there's a lot of Davo in that. So this will probably be no surprise at all. I, I want to stick Jodie in something like Kinder. I mention Kinder a lot on this show, <laughs> but it's because it's a good episode. And here, I think it would be an opportunity to stash Graham in the TARDIS like Nyssa and bleed off some of the attention that he was always pulling away from the Doctor, especially in the first series they made. In the second series, they toned it down. But there would be an opportunity for Graham to sort of, you know, just get put in the background for a little while it would be a chance for Yaz to go centre stage and be possessed by the Mara. I think that would be good because particularly in the first series, but also in the second series, Yaz was generally not given a lot of stuff to do. And I think Ryan would have an interesting side role. While meanwhile, and this is part of what sold it to me too, the Doctor could team up with someone like Todd in Kinder. Although let's sex change Todd to being a man and have Jodie in a situation with a male character, a male character who's not like Graham and is not like Ryan, and just like Davo pinging off Todd in a really cool and different way to how he worked with his own companions, I think that might bring something out of Jodie. And I think that might be really good too. I think it might just open up something in there. So, yeah, I, I went with Kinder here, Dave. That works. Mm, that really you. works. I like that. I, I don't have anything profound to say. It just just works for me. Yeah. I, look, I, I think the big one is just getting Jody bouncing off someone different. And uh, it, it worked for Davo in that story. It could work for her. Well, I went in a very different direction with Jody. So we still have no snaps. We have no snaps. No, we, have, we have no snaps. <laughs> um, and, I, I, and I know that we, we have covered uh, six of the seven classic Doctors. That's pretty neat. Yeah, which, which wasn't planned. We, do, we just have managed to do that. A couple of Troutons, a couple of Davos, and a couple of McCoys. Yeah. Oh, okay. There's a clue. Because I have put Jodie Whittier into a McCoy story. I want her in a story where she gets to, again, be the lighthearted person that gets to walk around and just be excited, have some fun, but also to deliver the really strong messages and speeches that I think she's very capable of. And in addition, I want her to come up against a really strong female villain to really, really make that dynamic spark. So I'm putting Jodie into the Happiness Patrol. I thought you might. (laughs) Because I want Jodie to have the fun of wandering around Terra Alpha, just exploring the place. I want Jodie Whittaker in the candy kitchen with the candy man, just having a whale of a time doing that goofy smile, just having fun with the Candyman. I think she would be so good as that. But then at the end of the story, she gets to have that confrontation with Helen A. Two really strong female actors, a goodie and a baddie, 
chalking a moral message. It would give Jodie something really useful to put, get her teeth into. Uh, I could imagine her having the fun playing the harmonica and doing the blues. I could just see Jodie doing this. I think it would work really, really well for her. Could she do the pull the trigger, take my life? Oh, absolutely. And, and You reckon she could? Yes, and I think that the, that's the scene that Chibnall has wanted to write for her for two years and hasn't written for her. And one of the reasons why perhaps Jodie hasn't quite landed or clicked or really stamped herself on the role as much as many of us want her to is because she needs a scene like that. And I think if Jodie had a story where she could, yeah, have fun with the Candyman, be a bit goofy, be a bit fun, but then have the pull the trigger in my life scene, have the two sides of the same coin, you know, happiness doesn't matter unless it exists with sadness, confrontation. I think it would give Jodie the performances that would cement her in the role and that she frankly deserves and hasn't had. Yeah, that's really nice. I think this is your second strongest pick out of your picks. In my opinion, Thank at least. Thank you. I've, I've brought it home strongly then. <laughs> you have. You have. You've come home on a wet sail there. Yeah. The more I think about yeah, that's nice. Yeah. I, I, really I think it would be, nice. be so good for, for, for Jodie. But um, look, I like where you went with all of them, Rob. My favourite, though, is your first. I think you started strong with the massacre for Eccleston. I, I think you're right. That would be amazing. And I want to see Christopher Eccleston in a 16th century wig and amongst habit playing the Abbot of Amboise. Uh, but but also, I want to see him give that speech at the end, the one where Stephen walks out. I want to see him give that monologue. Imagine Chris Jackson giving that monologue. It's a, one of Hartnell's great pieces of dialogue. Now, they're all gone. All gone. None of them could understand. Not even... My little Susan. Or oh, Vicky. And as for Barbara and Chatterton, Chesterton, they were all too impatient to get back to their own time. And now, Stephen. Perhaps I should go home. Back to my own planet. Yeah, look, and, and, and to be fair, that was one of the, the picks of mine that I took the most time making. So I'm, I'm kind of glad it, it came off because it seemed, it seemed a bit crazy at first. But no, I'm, I'm happy with it too, just quietly. <laughs> so I've been making notes. We've got two Troutons, two Toms, two Davos, two McCoys, a Hartnell and a Pertwee. So that's interesting. We, we kind of went for the same Doctors, even though we didn't have Snaps. Yeah, but, but with different people, with different people. So we went all over the shop. It's quite interesting. Um, poor old Colin. No one no one got put into a Colin story. Well, you know, because his era is so short and, you know, there's some underwhelming stuff in what's there. Well, well the best part of most of Colin's stories is Colin. So you don't want to take him out of it. <laughs> yeah, that, that is true as well, actually. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I don't have anything more to say. That was that was really fun. I'm, I'm blown away by some of your picks. Uh, Delta took my breath away it really did <laughs> i think it'll work i think it'll work. I think it'll work as always yeah we uh we await listener feedback and, and your picks and your ideas yeah i'd really love to hear what listeners make of of what we've said and also what they would do themselves yeah please please let us know we'd love to read them out speaking of 
<laughs> Speaking of, we are going to wrap up the show now. We've got uh, a lot of listener feedback, actually, and uh, then some uh, some other stuff. So let's get into it. This first email comes from TARDISNet66 on Twitter. He says, Hi, Robin Dave. Hope all is well with you. Having recently discovered your show, I thought I would write in with my thoughts that you could maybe read at least part of it out on your show, as I'm likely to waffle. <laughs> I have to say, I've been very much enjoying going back and listening through old episodes. I think what makes your podcast so captivating to listen to is partly your optimistic approach. Both of you clearly have a lot of love for the series and will definitely have valid critiques to make, but are also very balanced in your viewpoints with a lot of respect for differing opinions as well. It has been interesting as someone who was introduced to Doctor Who in 2005 with Christopher Eccleston's Ninth Doctor and then went backwards to the classic series later on to hear a different perspective, to hear from fans who were introduced to the show during the original run of the classic series and were already fans by the time of the modern series. And I'll just pause there. That That is quite interesting, Dave, for someone uh, to come on board. I think a lot of our listeners are older fans, but this is someone who started with, with New Who. Yeah, that's very cool. Hmm. So, moving on. As for the main topic, I have a few of my own thoughts. Oh, this is great. He's got some thoughts for uh, what we've just been doing. I think the Ninth Doctor and Rose would fit in very well to the Green Death. It's a shame the Ninth Doctor never got to work with Unit, and the Pertwee era very much fits with the grounded nature of Series 1. I think that's true. I think that's a very good Uh, pick, yes. Uh, as for the Tenth Doctor, I would personally go with the Tenth Doctor and Donna in The Robots of Death. The idea of the Tenth Doctor and Donna interacting with D84 <laughs> makes me smile. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, as for the Eleventh Doctor, I had to go with the Eleventh Doctor, Amy and Rory in The Mind Robot. That is fairy- so good. Yeah, yeah, that, that gets a big tick. Yeah. The fairy tale tone of the Matt Smith era feels like a perfect fit for the fantasy setting of the Mind Robber, and Rory's possible interactions with Rapunzel <laughs> is simply a hilarious idea. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Uh, the Twelfth Doctor and Clara, I think, would fit very well into the Pyramids of Mars, simply because of the cold and logical nature of the Fourth Doctor in that story, paired with Sarah Jane's frustration with his lack of humanity and empathy, already fits with the relationship between between the Doctor and Clara, particularly in Series 8. Yeah, I think I think yep. that's true tick, as well. Yep. Uh, tick. Uh, as for the 13th Doctor, I thought she, Ryan, Graham and Yaz would work well in Marco Polo. How <laughs> about that day? Love it. <laughs> the historical stories have been a highlight of the current era and very much reminded me of the Hartnell era historicals. Seeing the 13th Doctor struggle to regain the TARDIS might give her era and doctor the much needed stakes to battle with which she has very much lacked so far keep up the good work from TARDISnet 66 I love all of those picks but yeah the mind rubber is definitely the winner out of all of them oh absolutely great picks great picks uh, we have another from regular correspondent and uh, twitter interlocular uh, Owen Prince uh, <laughs> at Kellogg's 24 on twitter dear Robin Dave just finished listening to your fantastic thank you Just finished listening to your fantastic Season 6 podcast episode on my way to work. I have to say, I have never been a big early Who watcher, and my limited experience of Hartnell, Troughton and Pertwee have usually left me longing for the safety of Tom and Sylve. However, your discussion about these early days of our great obsession have me thinking that it is time to delve into the depths of 1963-74 and give the original trail of Doctors the respect and time pun intended, they deserve. 
As we all do, I have great affection for the Five Doctors, but let's be honest, that's not the best representation of Pat or John's eras, and given Bill wasn't around anymore, the less said the better about his representation in what was otherwise a very comfortable feel-good watch. I find myself struggling to remember Trout or even Pertwee being shown on TV in the 80s the way Dave does, and I think we are around the same age. I have clear memories of Tom and Davo, and definitely Sylv, being in that 5.36pm slot on the ABC. Uh, so yeah, look, I can remember them, but um, I can remember the uh, slightly later Pertwees that came in the early 80s. So perhaps a product of my dad having the TV on and watching Doctor Who obsessively when I was young, I, I might have an advantage there over... Um, Overall, and I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I look. I myself didn't watch as much Pertwee in the '80s as you did, David. <laughs> and I'm older than you. Well, there you go. I was very lucky. <laughs> yeah, you were actually. Yeah. The strongest memories are of Tom and that booming voice as a part of my childhood. And you already know my love of McCoy and his short-lived reign. Anyway, I feel like I'm prattling on now, but thought I'd let you know of my plan to dive into the classic Doctors more than ever before. Well, good luck with that. I, I hope you have um, I hope you have a good time and enjoy them as much as I enjoy them. <laughs> also thrilled that your April topic is a result of my tweet to you after I listened to Old Doctors in New Who episodes as a fresh listener looking through the back catalogue when I discovered your wonderful pod. There we go. I was right at the start of the episode. It was, it was Owen. No, so it's thank great. you. I hope I hope we delivered for you, Owen. Yeah. Keep up the great work, and I'm looking forward to whatever this new addition to the current roster of Doctor Who show podcasts is, especially as I have found the primary source of shows to be a fascinating addition. From Owen Prince in Melbourne, Victoria. There we go. What a great letter. What a wonderful letter. And I, I think you'll really enjoy getting into the first three Doctors, uh, Owen. There's some great stuff there. There really, really is. Okay, moving on. Dave Young, another regular contributor for us, says, Hello, Robin Dave, and a happy Easter to you. It's Easter Sunday here in the UK as I write. Much harder, I found, to fit new Doctors into classic stories, as the originals are so ingrained in our minds. But I have a few ideas. Won't list them all, as it will take forever. But I can see Capaldi's Doctor in The Demons. Here he can proclaim there is no such thing as magic in the same way that in Robot of Sherwood he claimed there was no such person as Robin Hood. Darker themes in this one as well, which when watching again this morning on the new Season 8 Blu-ray began to amaze me how little uh, this got out in 1971 as it openly mentions black magic. And that's very true actually. It, it is. I think that's a great pick. I think Capaldi's confrontation with Azal would be well worth the watch. Yeah, that's a good one. The other stories I can see him in are Ghostlight and Horror of Fang Rock, where the somber moods would fit his harsher tone, certainly in his first two series. And I've got to say, Horror of Fang Rock was almost my Capaldi pick. Oh, wow. Uh, tonight. Nice. Before I went towards uh, Deadly Assassin. Nice. Uh, Jody, I can see in some McCoy episodes, such as Paradise Towers and Delta, which in tone are not that far away from stories like Kablam. I will leave it at that. Still loving the podcast. On another note, if Jody is going, I'd like to see Michael Sheen in the role. He would be amazing. From Dave Young. Well, thank you for those thoughts, Dave. There's some, yeah, interesting ideas. And um, I can certainly see where he's going for with Jody and McCoy because I went down the same path. Yeah, absolutely. I, it was just me who put Tennant in McCoy. <laughs> all good, all good. Uh, and our last email is from John H. Sirs, hello again. 
Let me start by saying I am extremely excited for this coming episode. Your chat about placing classic Doctors into modern stories is one of my favourites. I can't wait to see what kind of sweet, sweet goodness you have in store for us listeners when you flip the script. I wanted to thank Shane for the kind words at the tail end of your March episode. It was the spark, the final push I needed to do something I've been contemplating for a while. Yes, I've started my own podcast. Yay! A journey through classic Doctor Who, centred around my first time through the classic series. One podcast per story. There will be other segments including high fidelity style top five list. For example, episode two featured my thoughts on the Daleks and my top five Mark Gattis stories. I'm learning as I go, having a blast doing it, and it's in large part due to what you gents have accomplished with your show. Thanks a bunch. You guys are the bee's knees, John H. Good luck with that podcast. One episode per story. We will um, see you at the end of that in 2042 or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, look, I was very excited by this. There's so much to unpack. I will say uh, John's uh, Twitter handle now is at AJT Doctor Who. The whole word doctor followed by who. Nice. And you can uh, get in touch with him there and talk to him there, learn more about the episodes. I've listened to what he's put out. He's, he's put out a, uh, a a great first episode. First episodes are always the hardest, John, I know. And then in his second episode, he hits the ground running. And he actually gives us, Dave, a very big rap at the start of his second episode, saying we were his inspiration for doing it. And uh, he, uh, he even gives a, a shout out to Shane as well, which I thought was lovely. And I've got to say, I don't think... Well, no one's ever told us we've inspired them to make a podcast before. Maybe we have inspired them and they haven't told us, but this is the first time someone's told us. So that that's quite special to me, I've got to say. Yeah, no, that, that is quite wonderful. And I will uh, be finishing this recording and downloading those to have a listen myself. Yeah, yeah. And finally, uh, he mentions making his top five lists. And uh, <laughs> I said to him when I got this email, I said, I oh, wait do you see what we do this this uh, weekend. And we, of course, are doing a, a list-based show because as, as long as there have been Doctor Who, fans there have been Doctor Who fans making lists and I think that's wonderful and I think uh, some of his top five lists already have been quite interesting to listen to uh, yes yeah, so that is a good excuse to just mention that we have launched in the last week the, the, <laughs> the list makers nice segue and it is just a chance for us to kind of do those topics that don't need a full monthly show but just you know what are your top five favourite of this what are your top five worst of these and just thrash them out over 20 minutes it's just a little bit extra a bit of fun to have and um, we've recorded a couple now and I've really enjoyed them and I think we're going to record a few more Oh, I think it's got legs, Dave. I think it's going to go very well. So if uh, if you're not a subscriber to us, you might not have seen this on your feed because you don't have a feed and you're just listening to us on the website. Do seek it out if that's the case. Otherwise, if you're a subscriber, it'll already be on your uh, your iPod or whatever the kids use these days. Absolutely. And if you do have any ideas to go into the Turlo Hat of Rassilon um, for, for, for top fives, please send them through and we will add them to the uh, drawer and it might be pulled out of the hat any time. And the Turlo Hat of Rassilon will make sense when you've heard that first episode. <laughs> it will, I hope. <laughs> Beauty. Uh, that's all the letters, Dave. I guess uh, quickly we'll rattle through what we're watching. I... I've mentioned on Twitter, and I may have mentioned on one of our short podcasts, that I've recently watched 86 hours of Spooks. So I've I've watched a lot of Spooks recently. Uh, I think it's a great series. I've been watching numerous comic strip presents, both really old ones like Five Go Mad and Dorset, and more recent ones like The Hunt for Tony Blair. I've gone all over the place there. And I'm now watching Space Battleship Yamato 2202, which is a sequel to Space Battleship Yamato uh, 2199. This is another modern version 
version of Space Battleship Yamato, which is just a fabulous series, whether it's the old series, whether it's the new series, I don't care, it's all good. Yeah, no, you've certainly been tweeting about those and having a great time, and you flicked me mm. um, one of those comic strip presents, and I looked at the first five minutes and the cast, and I thought, I, I need to sit down and watch this properly, and I, I will probably this weekend, so thank you for that. I think you'll enjoy that one. No, I, it, it looks really, really cool. <laughs> I haven't been watching all that much. A bit of Hartnell, as I mentioned. Uh, I mm-hmm. will say I have been uh, getting through some of the back catalogue of the Trek This Out podcast. And hello to the guys there. I know a couple of you are listeners of our podcast, so uh, that's really good. Particularly, they did some really good reviews of the three new Star Trek films. And oh, okay. that actually prompted me to go back and re-watch those films. Uh, and I have watched the first two. Um, Star Trek 2009 was even better than I remember. That was really, really good. Star Trek Into Darkness, I watched the first half and I thought, this is a lot better than I remember. Why am I so down on this? And then I watched the second half and remembered. Mm, <laughs> it yeah. really goes downhill in that second half, sadly. Um, yeah. I'm looking forward, though, to watching Star Trek Beyond because... I remember that as being the best of the three, and I hope it it uh, holds up. But also, they've done some episode reviews, and I've uh, I, I, I watched an episode of Voyager I'd never seen before, Living Witness, because they they have a random episode generator. Sometimes they just pick a random episode out of all the seven hundred and fifty billion Trek episodes there are, and um, <laughs> you know if they're TNG or Deep Space Nine or whatever, I've probably seen them. Voyager, yeah, fifty fifty that I've seen them, and uh, so yeah. that that's been fun. Uh, and also, just in terms of new stuff, I have been working through DC's Titans and quite enjoying that, and I will continue through to uh, Season 2, and Season 3 is on its way, I believe. So that's been fun. Well, that's fabulous. I, I've got a bit of a brag to make about that first Star Trek film, and that's at the time it came out, I was doing um, online publicity for Paramount Pictures. And so I got to go to the premiere of that and meet the cast. Wow. Yes. The premiere was at the Sydney Opera House where they remixed the sound in the film to suit the Sydney Opera House's internal acoustics. So I have sat in the Sydney Opera House, not very far from J.J. Abrams and the cast, enjoying a one-off sound mix of that film. (laughs) This, This is just ridiculous, isn't it? But it happened. And it was one of the most fabulous things I've ever experienced. That is very, very cool. Because I actually was thinking as I watched that first movie that this is not just a good soundtrack for Trek. This is a good soundtrack for any movie. So that would be yep. really, really cool. Yep. They got the guys out who did the sound on the on the film. And they must have sat in the, in the opera house and, and tweaked and prodded at their soundboard until the sound mix was just spot on for the space. Awesome. Uh, a plug for me, and it's not nearly as exciting as yours after that, <laughs> but but, <laughs> a, but, a, but a very heartfelt one. Um, I was invited onto the Diddly Dumb podcast. Uh, as we ah, okay. mentioned in our previous episode, their regular um, podcaster, Hayden, is uh, just had his first child, William, and so that's very good, but he is taking some much-needed, I suspect, paternity leave away from podcasting for a little bit while he gets used to fatherhood, and so they... Uh, the others, Doc and Mark, have been inviting some substitutes on, and uh, I was given an invitation to the Whoseum. They, uh, they have a little sort of a, a format they use sometimes where they get one of the presenters to basically present to the others a story that they really like, but maybe isn't as well regarded by their fellow podcasters or by 
fandom in general, and then they, they watch and discuss that story. So they asked me to do that, and I gave them a few suggestions. Uh, not all of them yeah. were Hartnell, but in the end, <laughs> the ones they picked for us to discuss were Hartnell. There were two stories I nominated that sit back-to-back that I think are the quintessential Hartnell stories. Now, it's their podcast. It'll be dropping pretty much the same time as this episode, so keep an eye out for it. I won't say what Hartnell stories we watch and discuss, but as a clue, I will say I believe the episode title is going to be Quo Tardis. <laughs> I think that's a big, uh, a big hint. <laughs> it's a big hint. So, look, that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed their podcast. It was great to visit the museum, and I encourage you to check that out. Oh, that's fabulous! I've I've done a Whoseum visit in the uh, the dim distant past. I talked about some uh, Doctor Who miniatures, I think. Gosh, I can't even remember now. But I do want to say uh, congratulations to Hayden on on having his uh, baby with the lovely Sophie. And one of the running themes on Diddly Dumb is that Hayden is quite jammy. You know, <laughs> if <laughs> if something's going to come up trumps for someone, it'll be Hayden that comes up trumps for. And of course. Hayden loves the second Doctor. His baby was was late, a couple of weeks late. And in being a couple of weeks late, his baby was born on Patrick Troughton's birthday. <laughs> that is Can true. you believe yes. that, Dave? Yes. Can you believe it? Jammy as. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Good on you, Hayden. Rob, what are we doing for next month's podcast? Dave, we're doing something. It, it came up as kind of like a... I don't know. Was it a was it a brain fart? A, a throwaway thought, I think it was. <laughs> a very throwaway thought in an episode, and it was like, oh, that might be a cool idea. And then when we were making the list for this year, it was like, oh, do you remember when we talked about blah blah blah? Yeah, okay, throw that on the list. And so next episode, we're going to do something that you've probably never heard another podcast do before. Uh, it's not a story. It's not a season. It's not a, an actor. We're going to look at cool spaceships in Doctor Who. We are. We have talked about cool aliens, although we haven't done a dedicated episode. That might be one for next year. We've definitely talked about cool planets. And mm-hmm. now we're talking about cool spaceships because I know particularly as a boy, aliens, planets and spaceships, were, you know, they're what I watch the show for. Yeah, absolutely. So I... I think, how many will we come up with? Like, uh, we won't put a, a, a firm number on, but at least four or five each or something yeah, like that. Yeah, four or five, half a dozen. I'm, I'm not sure what we're going to come up with. I'm, I'm, it's going to be really interesting. <laughs> we might have to stretch the definition of spaceships. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. There are some, there are some tangents we can go down on. That's, that's so true. But look, before uh, then, before our next episode at the end of um, May... Gosh, May already. We'll be obviously doing another Primary Sources, which got a bit of love uh, early in the letters, and another episode of The List Makers. So if you've not heard The List Makers yet, catch up with our first episode, and uh, you'll have another episode again uh, before you hear us uh, do a monthly show. Yes, I think this Primary Sources is one where I'm back, and The List Makers topic for May is Top 5 Companion Departures. Yeah. Yeah, as drawn from the hat of Rassilon or Turley. <laughs> That's right. Or Dave's holiday hat, whatever it That's is. That's right. But look, we've we've <laughs> talked enough for this month. Uh, we've had some good fun. Well, I know I've had some good fun putting some new Doctors in classic stories. I think it's time to say goodbye. I think so. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> You've been listening to The Doctor Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Show 
We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net.